Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. We want to welcome everyone as we begin our first week of Genesis part two, which is Genesis chapters four through 11. If you haven't listened to our study on Genesis chapters one through three, we encourage you to do so. They are live dated, I think, the first week of April of 2022. So now we're going to study Genesis chapters 4 through 11. So again, if you're doing this with us and you miss a week, just note that they're all going to be backdated. So this one will go live June 9 of 2022, and the next one will be June 10 of 2022. Let's begin. Yes, a lot of what we did in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is going to be relevant for this particular study also. But nonetheless, one of the things that happens is people often describe the Bible as Genesis 1, 2, and 3 narrate creation, and then well, Genesis 1 and 2 creation, Genesis 3 and uh, Genesis 4, uh, Genesis 3 is the fall, and then you have uh, redemption, you know, restoration, and then the resurrection or new creation. It's very common for Christians to describe the four stages of the biblical story. So creation, the fall, uh, redemption or restoration, depending on how you want to look at that, and then the new creation. And I'm going to contend that the fall is not Genesis 3, because what happens in Genesis 3 is the start, and Genesis 4, it's going to get worse, and it's going to keep getting worse. And then he's going to decide to wipe the earth out in Genesis 6, and then starts anew with Noah. Oh, that's not going to work either. And then we get to Genesis chapter 11, and they're not filling the earth and being fruitful and multiplying like they're supposed to. They're all stuck in Babel, so I'm going to confuse the languages and spread them out. And as they spread out, then I call Abraham and the story then begins the next phase of the story of what you want to call redemption, restoration, whatever you might want to call really begins in chapter 12. So the fall, if we want to call it the fall, and that's up to debate, but I don't really care. Uh, It's Genesis 3 through 11. It's not just Genesis chapter 3. It's Genesis 3 through 11. So that includes Genesis 4 and following. So let's begin by reading Genesis 4. And let's start with verses 1 through 7. Genesis 4. One through seven. If anybody wants to read it, that's fine. Please do so. Turn your mic on. I can. Thank you, Anna. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have obtained a male child with the help of the Lord. And again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was the cultivator of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord from the fruit of the ground. And Abel, on his part, also brought an offering from the firstborn of his flock and from their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very gloomy, very angry, and his face was gloomy. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face gloomy? If you do well, will you not your face be cheerful? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain talked to his brother Abel, and it happened that when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. All right, here we go. The fame story of Cain and Abel. Now, verse 1, actually, I was just looking at the translations here. The man had relations with his wife, or and of course, the, the Hebrew says that Adam knew Eve, right? He, he knew her. Uh, and the ESV says knew, and a couple other translations say knew. Obviously, it means this intimacy of, of sexual relations. It then goes on to say, and she conceived and gave birth to, to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man-child, this is the New American Standard, 
with the help of the Lord. All right, uh, ESV says, I have gotten a man, help, a man with the help of the Lord. And the Net Bible says, I have created a man just as the Lord did. And that actually might be a really good translation. The NIV says, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a child. The New Living Translation, with the help of the Lord, I have produced a child. New King James says, I have acquired a man from the Lord. And the new NRSV says, I've produced a man with the help of the Lord. But note the difference with the, the, um, the Net Bible again. I created, and it doesn't say with the help of the Lord, just as the Lord did. In fact, the New American Standard Bible has with the help of in asterisks, because like, okay, that's maybe not the correct translation. It seems that what Eve is saying is, I've done something that the Lord did. The Lord might have created Adam, but I now have created a man myself. And it's like, oh, this is, this is boasting. It's arrogant. It's a problem. Uh, I'm equal with the creator in, in making a man or making a person nonetheless. In fact, the word Cain, the name Cain means gotten one. I got one. Uh, that's, what his, that's what his name means. And the names are really often very significant. Uh, we don't know what Abel's name means or it's unique and the etymology of it is one of those things we don't really know uh, what's going on all right any questions or comments as we continue as we all right so here we go so remember the context i'm going to review just for the sake of everyone i know some people weren't with us before but um even those of you who were with us i know how it works reviews are a good thing so god creates adam and eve to bear his image means to reflect his glory meaning adam and eve were to, to rule that's genesis 126 over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and to subdue the earth. They were to rule well. Uh, they were reminded in Genesis 1, I think it's verse 28, that the plants were actually given to the animals also, meaning that when you subdue the earth, which is agriculture, uh, it's not all for you. you. You make sure that you leave some for the animals because they get the plants also. They're supposed to rule well, and, and by ruling well, they make God known, but they're also supposed to rule as one. In fact, it's not until the sin enters the story that they realize they're not one and they're naked. So that's the uniqueness that happens there. Furthermore, they're supposed, to, they're supposed to reign as one. They're supposed to serve as kings and priests. The ultimate idea then is, uh, anybody remember this? The imagery of, of Eden, what's, what's the key way that Eden is described? Maybe not necessarily in Genesis 1 and 2, it's hinted at, but as we go through the rest of the biblical text, Eden is a blank. Temple. A temple. It's also a, well, we know it's a garden in Genesis chapter one and two, right? It's a garden. So it's a garden, it's a temple, and it's also a, or it's oh. on a mountaintop. Uh, on a mountaintop. And the mountaintop signifies that's where the king resides. So obviously in, in the temple imagery, that's where God resides, but God's the great king. Uh, and Adam and Eve are going to be his image bearers and make him his kingship known to the rest of creation. Now, Adam and Eve were told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so that's also part of this responsibility as however they choose in order to, well we said this in our last set of discussions in order to do to, to rule and to rule well they have to be able to discern what good and evil yeah good and evil or good and the tree of good and bad they need to eat from that tree because they need to know how to discern good and bad or they can't rule well now one quick anecdote and this may or may not come up in the course of this study but Adam and Eve are portrayed as children, not knowing good and evil yet. They're, they haven't gotten to the state of adulthood where they know good and evil and they can differentiate. The distinction, however, was, are you going to eat when God commands you or when God permits you, which he, have, he hasn't done yet? 
And the text never says that he's going to give them permission, but that's because the story didn't go that way. It seems implied that the text is going, that they are going to eat this from this tree, but they, he said, no, from the, now, when they decide to eat from that tree, it's because they take up their own decision at the deception of the, of the serpent. They decide to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil or good and bad. And the whole idea is we're going to rule for ourselves. We'll decide right and wrong for ourselves. And the consequences of that are the chaos, sin, destruction, and things that you have now. This is the way power works. The way power works in the kingdoms of the world is we choose for ourselves. And what I've said many times now is those in power choose for themselves. They all, those in power are going to choose good and evil first and foremost, to keep themselves in power. Even if they're good people, they want to keep themselves in power. And it's almost always at the expense of the outcasts, the poor, the marginalized, et cetera. And obviously they use power, they use war, they use military might, they use stepping on the little guy, deception, and all these things uh, to rule. That goes into Genesis 3 now, where there's friction between Adam and Eve. And that friction is, you're going to want to rule over your husband. But when it says desire, the word for desire is to desire in a, in a way that dominates. That seems to be the case. And, the, and it says, but he will rule over you. And the word for rule seems to imply a, a domineering rule. Sorry, God's not establishing male patriarchy. He's simply saying, this is the way it's going to be. He, he's not condoning it. He's, he's simply saying, this is what's going to happen. So there's friction in these relationships. All of a sudden, now we have friction in the brothers. Right, so what are some questions that you might ask or you might that might arise in the Cain and Abel story that you're like, well, wait a minute, what's why did that happen? Or why did this happen? Anything that stands out? I mean, if you read the notes, you might have seen a couple of the questions and answers. But any thoughts that you have or things that come to mind here in Genesis from what you just read in Genesis 4, the first seven verses? Yeah, why was Cain's offering not accepted since he was the, the one that tilled the ground? Yeah. Whereas Abel was the keeper of the flock. So it seems like they brought what they did. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question, right? Now, the text doesn't answer it. The question is, is does the text give us clues as to what the answer might be? Right. So it doesn't it doesn't answer the question, but it does probably give us some clues. And there's a couple questions in the text that we realize, OK, I think I know the answer because the author wants us to know. But the point that Anna noted is. Cain's actually doing what Adam and Eve were told to do, to till the soil. Whereas Abel is a keeper of the flocks. And we don't know that they were supposed to keep flocks in Genesis 1 and 2. I mean, maybe they were, right? That's, maybe that's what subduing the earth includes. It doesn't. We only know that they're supposed to till the soil. Adam's a gardener in the garden, and it seems like growing crops is what he does. And the curse on Adam is the, the land's going to be cursed, and you're going to have trouble tilling the soil now it's going to create you problems so if Cain is doing what they're supposed to do and Abel's offering also means something happened by the way what in order for Abel to, off, to give an offering as the keeper of the flocks he must kill the lamb kill something yeah so you think okay so what's going on here so anybody have a thought on that he gave the firstborn yeah, there you go. The first, the, yeah, yeah. So Abel, on his part, brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. In other words, the offering of Abel is described. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But Cain, he had he no didn't. regard for his offering. It, it doesn't say what he brought. It just yeah, says, it does say he brought it in the course of time. So it yeah. wasn't immediate. 
but that, that's possible too, right? Yeah. Um, he brought uh, an offering of the Lord from the fruit of the ground. Then verse three, he brought an offering of the Lord from the fruit of the ground. Okay. Is it a good offering, a bad offering? He didn't come know. to do the first fruits. I mean, it doesn't say yeah. whether he did or not. That's right. So. The fact that it describes Abel's and not Cain's is probably the author's way of telling you what he thinks. Because he he's going to do this several times. I think one commentator, uh, or Tremper Longman made a comment in one of the studies that he has. You have a reticent author. He's, he's reticent to tell you things. But what he does tell you probably fills in the gaps and says, figure this out for yourselves because it's, it's kind of obvious. And again, you got to be careful when you say that, right? Because sometimes the author doesn't answer the question and we fill in the gaps and we're, like, and we're speculating. But it seems like the author's begging for you to do that here. And, and it's like, yeah, you didn't give me the best and your brother did. We'll, we'll come back to that later on. Hey, Rob. Yes, please. Since Moses wrote this, I presume his audience was to... Um... Um, to, to the Israelites. So should we consider the audience and that they would understand uh, offering of, of Cain's not, not being first fruits? Um, that's normally a really good thought, right? A absolutely. What's the author's intention? How are the readers going to understand this in terms of they're aware of what's going on? But if you're writing ancient history and who wrote it in the, da in the date of writing it, they don't know the story other than how it's handing down to them. So you could assume, well, they've heard this story orally before and they know how it goes. And that could be a possibility. They knew the story because they had heard it orally because this is part of our heritage. Moses is just penning down what we've always been told and they knew it. But it seems here that the author is actually giving you the clue himself. The, the author doesn't describe Cain's offering. He does describe Abel's offering. There you go. It had to have not been a good offering. That, that's what's going on. There's another question now, and that is, Actually, we haven't read that far. So let's read the next part and then we'll kind of come back if we need to. Let's read verses 8 through 16. I'll go. Thank you, Branch. Cain said to his brother Abel, let us go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it will no longer yield to you its strength. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Today you have driven me away from the soil and I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and anyone who meets me may kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. Whoever kills Cain will suffer a sevenfold vengeance. And the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who came upon him would kill him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Very good. All right. If you have the notes that I handed out at the top of it, it has a little bit of a script. It says, note the parallels between Genesis 3 and Genesis 4. Adam and Eve knew they were naked, Genesis 3, verse 7. Adam knew his wife, Genesis 4, 1. Both accounts, God says, where are you? Right? That, Genesis 3, 9. And where is your brother? Genesis 4, 9. In both accounts, God asks, what have you done? Genesis 3.13, Genesis 4.10. In both accounts, the earth is cursed. Genesis 3.17 and Genesis 4.11. And both Adam and Cain are banished from the presence of God to the east. In fact, they're going farther and farther east. Now, what's east? Well, what's east ultimately is Babylon. So that's le it's leading us to Genesis 10 and the table of the nations and the, the tower of Babel 
It's leading us, they're heading in that direction. Babylon is the evil empire of all empires and the evil entity as it, as it is. Next thing to notice is that in this chapter, and we'll go through this as we proceed through the chapter, there's going to be seven generations. And when we get to the seventh, and numbers are obviously very important in the biblical text, and they always are, and the book of Genesis is no exception to that. When you get to the seventh, it's going to be worse than, the, than we started off. And so it's going to be really bad. And that's going to lead us to the end of the chapter, but we'll, we'll come on on that in a minute. Uh, what's the next question? Anybody have a question that, that arises from the beginning of the passage that we just read? It's kind of obscure, but it's a common question that's out there. Who are these people that Cain's afraid of that are going to kill him? Oh, very good. Yeah. Who, who are these people, right? Who are these people? Very good. What is the mark? Ah, very good. What's the mark? Common question. There's another question, and that is, how did he lure his brother to kill him? I mean, it doesn't, it just says he lured him and killed him. Okay. So the text is not answering these questions. And sometimes we're best advised to like leave them out there and leave them hanging. I think the first one was Cain's sacrifice was unacceptable. I think that's just the answer. The text doesn't say that, but the fact that there's a description of Abel's offering and not of Cain says, yeah, I think that's what's going on there. Where does everybody else come from? Well, this is going to be a matter of dispute. So you have, mind you, when you have the book of Genesis in the first 11 chapters, you got two major boxes of perspectives. In each box, you got all kinds of different opinions. So the first box is the conservative, fundamentalist, evangelical um, box that says this is historical and it's literal. And Adam and Eve are real people that lived 10,000 to 50,000 years ago. And that box, usually has some view of, well, how do you deal with the scientific evidence that says the universe is really old? And their answer is, oh, well, God made it looking old. You know, if he made grown trees and you were to cut one of the trees down, they would look, the count the rings, they would look like it's hundred years old when in all reality, it's actually a couple of days old. That's kind of the way that this, that first box handles it. And the question becomes, well, where'd Adam and Eve's, where, where'd all these people come from? And they would appeal to Genesis five. And I think it's verse three in Genesis five, Adam and Eve had many sons and daughters. So in that mindset, and different views within that one box, it says, oh, well, by now, a long time's gone on in the story. They're probably old people. Cain's grown up. Abel's grown up. You know, years and years have gone by, and you've got generations and generations. They're living to be 900 years. This could be 200 years later. There could be all kinds of people out there. And that's kind of a common way of that view taking it. The second box, which has all kinds of different views in there, says, uh, no, we're going to look at Genesis chapters one through 11. And depending on your view, as uh, we discussed this in our previous study, more uh, mythological history, but the word myth is a really bad word because it means something in English and in American English that it doesn't mean in the ancient world. Because in English, it means not true. And they didn't say it's not true. It's just simply, this is the way they told stories. When you compare the Genesis account, especially Genesis one and two in the garden account to ancient creation stories, uh, the Gilgamesh epic and all these ancient creation stories that have been discovered in the last 100 years, you find out Genesis 1 and 2 is in the same, it's describing things the same way. The sea is the problem, there's sea monsters and they're causing chaos and God has to separate, uh, solve the chaos and create order from it. Genesis 1, 2 says it was chaos, tohu bahu, the deep of the earth and God separates the seas and the seas up this way and the seas this way. So that idea that now within that view, you have all kinds of different views and different thoughts, but the answer would be, we're not taking this as historical in the sense that these are being people that lived 100 or 10,000, 50,000 years ago. So the idea of saying that 
there were other people out there, no problem. And there, maybe there were other people out there. So that's kind of the two ways of handling the question. So I'll just, I'll kind of leave it at that. So these other people come from, there were other people. God chose Adam and Eve to be the first representatives of the human, of humanity, even though there were other humans out there and what Adam and Eve did apparently affected all of humanity. So uh, that's kind of the idea there. And there's all kinds of thoughts on that. Okay, any other questions here? That was actually Anna's question. My question was the mark. Oh, your question was the mark. Okay, oh, so that, thank you very much. We have no idea what the mark is. We're not told when the mark is. We're not told what the mark is. There's nothing in the text. And here's the, I think the key that hints at what the mark might be, whatever it is, you'd have to say it's something physical, but that's all, you know, and depending on what you want to do with the text, some have taken this to be the mark of the curse on Cain, on, on Ham. Now, by the way, the oddity there is Ham wasn't cursed. Canaan was cursed. His, his son was cursed. So Ham is one of Noah's three sons. Ham, uh, this, by the way, it misunderstood. Ham has sex with his mom. That's what he uncovered his father's nakedness and means that after they got off the ark, he uncovered his father's nakedness. He had relations with Noah's wife, which was probably his mom. And so cursed be Canaan, which means Ham's not cursed, Canaan is. Well, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Ham is the father of Africans, basically by descent. If you watch the Table of Nations, they simply go to, oh, that's what it is. So the mark on Cain is the mark of black skin. And you can see the, immediately the racial undertones of that. And the oddity there becomes, well, it can't be the same mark as Ham. If you're taking the story literally, it can't be because Ham's descendants all died in the flood. Or, I'm sorry, uh, Cain's descendants all decided, died in the flood. Now, by the way, the descendants of Cain did not all die in the flood. But let me, let me explain. Those who argue that it's the mark of Cain is the mark of Ham usually hold to this literalistic view of Genesis. And if you hold to a literalistic view of Genesis, they all died in the flood. The problem with that theology, not only the racist theology saying that's what the mark was, but if you read the story, Cain's descendants are still there after the floods. When we get in the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you're going to see Kenites, right? And it's actually derivative from, from Cain. So Kenites are descendants of Cain. So we got to figure out how to do, uh, what to do with that also. So I think that's the answer I would give you, Anthony. We don't know what the mark was or anything about that. So. All right. Um, nonetheless, he kills him. And here's the key. And this is going to be the key for a lot of the justice in Genesis. And some of you might recall, this is a difficult question, but you might recall this. Um, you know, where is your brother Abel? Which is the question that God asked Adam and Eve. Where are you? Um, uh, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer is actually, you're supposed to be. Um, that's this cumulative thing of, of human. But verse uh, 10, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. There you go. The justice or the injustice against the oppressed, the blood of the oppressed cries out. So, and uh, anybody recall, where do you might hear, remember hearing something like that in the biblical story? The blood uh, of your brother is crying out to me from the ground. Artists? What's that? The martyrs in Revelation. Yeah, in the Revelation. book. Of, yeah, yeah. Actually, that's very correct. The martyrs in the book of Revelation are crying out, "How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood?" So, yeah, very good. So, something. There's another example. There's there's plenty of examples in the book of Genesis as well as in the book of Exodus. The one you'll probably remember is the book of Exodus, or you might remember. 
So no, no takers. God calls Moses because of the outcry of the oppression of the Israelites was so great. God heard their cry and that's Genesis two verses, I think 23 through 25. And then chapter three, verse one, God calls Moses. So the Pharaoh's oppression of the Israelites causes the Israelites to cry out. All right, you also have stories like in Sodom and Gomorrah, the outcry in Sodom and Gomorrah is so great. And I'm gonna tell Abraham what I'm gonna do. Hey, Abraham, here's what I'm gonna do. The cry of the innocent, the cry of those who have been oppressed cries out from the ground. So now Cain's worried, well, look, someone's going to kill me. And the, uh, the irony, of course, is the fact that, well, you did. So uh, this isn't fair. But no, no. So God sends him out. And guess what happens? He doesn't do what he's told. What he's told is, you're going to become a wanderer. And he's not going to become a wanderer. He settles in the land of Nod. In fact, I think that's verse 16, east of Eden. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening to the podcast. We really appreciate it and hopefully it's blessing you. Hey, do us a favor, if this is something that you are digging, if it's helping you, if it's uh, encouraging you, take a second just to like it, give it a review, give it you know, five stars if you think it's five star worthy, uh, share it with your friends. And we just wanna get this out to more people. Uh, this isn't something that we're in for the bucks, but it's something that we wanna encourage and equip people with. So do that, help us out, and now we'll get back to the podcast. Let's read 17 through 24, 17 through 24, and pick up the story. There. And we'll probably, we might go back, but let's see 17 through 24. Who's got it? I can do it. Let's see. Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And Cain built a city named the city Enoch after the name of his son. Now to Enoch was born um, Erod, and Erod fathered Mehujel. <laughs> yeah, so I and... give you a genealogy here, right? You want me to read it? Oh, what? You, you, want, you, and, you got it? Yeah, and okay. Mehujel, I, I won't say the names right, I'm sure. Mehujel fathered uh, Methuselah, so, uh, yeah. fathered Lamech. Where am I supposed to read to? Through 24. Slamak yep. took two wives for himself, and the name of the one was Adad, and the name of the other was Zelah. Uh, Adad gave birth to um, Jabel. He was the father of those who live in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubel. Um, he was the father of all those who play the lyre and the flutes. As for Zelah, she also gave birth to um, to Bulcain, uh, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubalcain was Nema. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillow, listen to my voice. You wives of Lamech, pay attention to my words, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged seven times, the Lamech Lamech, uh, 72 times. 77. 77 times. Yep. All right. What do you see here? Lots of names. Oh, yeah, lots of names. Very good. Thank you, Jerry. What stands out in this description here of what's happening? Repetition. Okay. Repetition of, of anything in particular? They're being fruitful and multiplying. Okay. They're being fruitful and multiplying. That's true. Yep, that is true. <laughs> They're still killing each other. 
Well, Hello? I was looking at the other word. Enoch comes up. Okay. For the first time that we see it. Okay. Here. So we don't know who that person is yet. I think Maybe. that I'd have to look carefully at it. I think this is a different Enoch. Um, I think it is. Oh. I think I think the Enoch of um, Genesis five is not the same Enoch as Genesis four. So this is also not the same Enoch that the Apostle Paul refers to. Correct. This is not the Enoch that lives um, that never dies. Right. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that that's that's Genesis five. The genealogy. The, I think that's one of Seth's descendants, not one of Cain's descendants. So, but they have the same name. Okay. Um, very good. All right. Somebody else was going to comment. I think. They're already starting with polygamy and mm. um, and Lamech's a pretty bad guy. Yes. All right. So yeah. sin's getting worse, right? Yeah. So Cain kills Abel, his brother, and now Lamech kills two people. So the, the murder's getting worse and he kills two people. And what happened? Why did he kill him? Well, the, the kid hit me. I, I killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me, which again, could be Hebrew par parallelism. So, yeah, he hit me. There's no way I'm going to let him hit me. So I killed him. And what's he doing about it? He's boasting about it. Cain uh, was hiding. Where are you? And now you kill two, including kids. And you're like, said to his wives, both of them. You know, he, he said to both of them, guess what I did today? I killed two people. But these, these kids hit me. So I killed them. So you can see the intensity in which sin is increasing. And you have polygamy. And of course, you can argue that God has not outlawed or whatever polygamy, but the answer is, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. The creation account, the narrative of Genesis 1, seems to imply that it is monogamy. That's all it's allowed. So, And by the way, every instance of polygamy in the Bible always comes out in a negative light. It just always is. There's always rivalry, this, whether it's rivalry with the kids, rivalry with the wives. It's never good. It's not a good thing. So you can say the Bible doesn't condemn uh, polygamy. It does condemn polygamy for kings and priests, which should tell you something in there all by itself. It doesn't condemn polygamy for everybody else, but it never draws a good picture of polygamy. So what does it think of polygamy? Well, it doesn't, it doesn't like it. All right. Anything else that you notice in the story? Yeah. Question. Is, is there a link there between the forgiveness of seven times, seven times, or is that just. I think that's just coincidental. And, and I don't, I don't think. The 77 times is linking back to this. That's a, a very important question though, right? If that you see a word in the biblical yeah. text later on, is it causing you or wanting you to think of an earlier passage? I don't think yeah. that's the case here. I think that's just simply, I could be wrong, but I have to, you have to see more indications in the Jesus passage to, to indicate that. That's very good thinking though. Um, very good. So you had mentioned, so he was supposed to be wandering, yeah. but he built Enoch. He built the city. So he was kind of disobedient. Yes, he built a city. Uh, and I think I brought this up in a discussion we had a while back, and I was trying to remember. Tim Keller wrote a really excellent book, and it's basically on missions. It's called Center Church. It's thick. So it's only like 300 pages, but there's two columns on each page, you know, so it's, it's really heavy reading. And it's excellent stuff. And Tim Keller's vision, I don't know how many of you know who Tim Keller is, but he's one of the leading thinkers in the church today. He has been diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer, by the way, but word actually is that they have a new treatment and he's doing okay so far. So um, keep in your prayer, but he's a pastor in New York City. He started a church, planted a church in Manhattan, 
and it grew to like 10,000, but not because he was trying to grow a church of 10,000, just because he was preaching the gospel. And these kids in Manhattan wanted to hear the gospel. I mean, I say kids, but 20 to 35 year olds. And he just attracted them and he'd have these honest intellectual conversations with them. So it's one of those mega churches that in my mind wasn't, he was talking and, and challenging and asking hard questions and wasn't shying away from these things. And I think it attracted a lot of people. And obviously community gets formed that way. So Tim Keller stepped down from his church, Redeemer Presbyterian in, in New York City, uh, several years ago. And his plan was that his goal was to plant a hundred new churches. So he wanted to plant new churches. So Tim Keller, so Bill Douglas might remember this, but Tim Keller was the one who wrote that article, Bill, that we looked at when we come to church planting. And, and he said that church planting does two things. Number one, it's the best way to reach people for Jesus because an established church in the same neighborhood has, they're established and they have their way of doing things and it doesn't attract new people. They have their own culture, but a, ch a church plant can reach new people. And secondly, it's the best way to reinvigorate, revitalize an, ex an older congregation. It gives them a vision, a mission, something to kind of, kind of get a hold of. So uh, that's Tim Keller. Uh, his vision was to plant 100 new churches. And his book was Center City. And his idea was we want to go to New York City and all these big cities and plant churches. And that's why I'm telling you the story. And in his book, cities are a good thing and they need to be redeemed by God and by Christ and everything else. And I'm thinking, well, I totally understand what he's saying, but theologically, I don't think that works. And the reason why I don't think what I, what I mean by that is I don't think cities are a good thing works. And I'm not saying that they're inherently bad. So you have to move out of the city and move to the country. I'm not saying that. I'm simply saying that the biblical story always seems to portray them in a negative light. The only exception is Jerusalem, but even Jerusalem, it's this Jerusalem from above that's ultimately going to come down and be this this holy city that takes over the entirety of the creation. It's the, it's the city of God. So I, my indications of that are several fold. Number one, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You weren't supposed to stop and build cities. Cain's the first one to build a city and it's in rebellion. He's told, you're going to be a nomad. No, I'm not. I'm going to build a city. So I think the biblical story already is telling you, yeah, cities aren't a good thing there. And then of course, in Genesis 1 through 11, it's going to lead you to Babylon. And Babylon is the essence of a city that rivals Eden. It has a, a ziggurat or this temple that ascends up in the heavens. We're going to bring heaven and earth down to here. We're going to reach the gods. It's totally this Eden imagery in reverse. And it's evil because it's not filling the earth. So God says, guess what? I'm going to scatter you guys by confusing your languages. And I'm going to make you fill the earth. Now, that doesn't mean that eventually cities won't come about. But I think the, the biblical idea is that cities are portrayed negatively. So I would take odds with um, Tim Keller on that. So I think you're looking at Cain, what he's doing here in the negative. Now that brings up another question, right? Does anybody know what question I'm thinking of here? If Cain's being portrayed in the negative as an act of rebellion, sin's getting worse. Seven generations from Adam were completely corrupted now with Lamech. We got polygamy going on, killing people, uh, two of them because they wounded you. Then what do we do with something else in this particular passage. Anybody know? Culture, culture. Look at all the cultural accomplishments. And now you have animals and sheep and goats and cattle, but you have music and metallurgy and um, bronze and iron and all these things. It seems like the world's cultural accomplishments are, are due to Cain. And you're like, well, does that make them bad? I don't think it necessarily makes them bad. I just think it's interesting that 
they're being they're being depicted as something that Cain in his generation has done. So it makes it makes it interesting. Of course, it obviously you have other questions like how they know that if the biblical story is following the lineage of Seth, and then how do you know uh, what Cain's generations did? If there's that's many people out there that he's gone off to a distant place, you know, how do you get the story of that? But that I think that's questions that we're not actually supposed to ask. Somebody else? I don't know, Rob. Maybe it just says that even in the midst of you know dreadful, really bad, sinful behavior, there is goodness there. Yeah, that, that's that's possible. Yeah. Yeah, that's possible. I mean, the, the only thing I think you could say would be, well, that's like um, a really positive way of thinking of things because the text is leading us on all these negative paths, right? Polygamy, murder, and arrogant boasting of murder, building of cities when he's not supposed to build a city. And then you have the, it's like, that doesn't seem to be the exception. So, but yeah, we'll leave it at that. So. Um, all right. Hey, Rob. Yeah, please. Yeah, uh, just like with anything we do, it, it depends upon uh, who we're giving the glory, even culture. You know, well, giving, yeah. Is, is, are we a part of a culture because we're giving the glory to God or is it, or is it glorifying man? Mm -hmm. so. Right. And we certainly use the cultural accomplishments of Cain's family to glorify God. It's just interesting that they're the yeah. ones that are uh, given the credit for doing so. Okay, let's look at the last two verses, and then we'll kind of bring this to a summary. Verses 25 and 26 of Genesis 4. I'll read that one. Thank you, Dave. Um, this is from NIV. Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son and named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Okay. Now, Seth's name, Seth's name means seed or offspring. And there's all the clue you want, you need. So if, I don't think I reviewed on this earlier. What you have in Genesis 3.15 is the discussion to the serpent and says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the humanity, between your seed and her seed. So the biblical story is the story about Eden being recovered, even being restored, or God's presence being restored to his creation. Because remember, Adam and Eve were kicked out, and the cherubim and a flaming sword guards the entrance to it. And how's, how's humanity going to get back into God's presence, or how's God's presence going to get back amongst in the midst of humanity? And obviously, that's the incarnation of Jesus. Another way of looking at the story, however, is the story is also going to narrate this conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. That's what will be important for next week's discussion. The seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman. And Seth is the seed of the woman. You're like, oh, here's a... So if you're just reading Genesis, you don't know the whole story. Obviously, the first recipients of the book know the story because it's just been told for generations and generations, you would assume. But if you just pick up your Bible, you're like, oh, this, here's your answer. It's Seth. He, he replaces Abel. His name means seed or offspring. We're good to go. In fact, the men, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. There you go. We have our answer. Now, we're going to continue on chapter five and six. If I don't, uh, well, it isn't that easy. But right now, it looks like Seth is actually the answer to the problem of, that, that was created in Genesis chapter, uh, chapter three. Any thoughts, any questions or comments? Let's go now. I think I put on your notes a couple of New Testament passages. First John chapter three. 
So now what you're looking at here in First John 3 is what does, what does the Jewish world do with this story? And that's important to note. That what is the Jewish world doing with these stories? So the biblical writers are Jews who are part of that Jewish world who have the story. And so what do they do with it? So 1 John 3, verses 11 and 12. Let me summarize verses 4, 5, and 6 really quickly. If you practice lawlessness and, and sin is lawlessness, then you're in trouble. Um, but Christ appeared that he might take away sins, and there is no sin in him. The one who abides in him sins. I'm sorry, no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has either seen him or known him. So what John's doing is he's describing two groups of people, the ones who practice lawlessness and the ones who practice righteousness, the ones who abide in sin and the ones who do not abide in sin. Now, just to clarify, John's not describing um, the people who never sin at all versus the people who do sin. And that's kind of the way people have taken First John. Uh, to, the word for abide in sin, the, the verb itself, has a form that suggests to continuously abide in a sinful, corrupt, habitual ways. So it doesn't mean that we can't ever sin. It just means the ones who habitually are sinning versus the ones who are habitually living in righteousness, or at least that's characteristic of them. So this, the, the contrast between the two groups. So verse seven, make sure no one, actually, I'll, I'll let you read. Anyone want to read verses seven through 12? This is from the Net Bible. Okay. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as Jesus is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was revealed, to destroy the works of the devil. Everyone who has been fathered by God does not practice sin, because God's seed resides in him, and thus he is not able to sin because he has been fathered by God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are revealed. Everyone who does not practice righteousness, the one who does not love his fellow Christian, is not of God. For this is the gospel message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Keep going. Yeah, verse 12. Not like Cain, who was of the evil one, and brutally murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. There you go. So now we have an answer. This is what at least what the Jewish world thought of the Cain and Abel story. And that is Cain's deeds were evil. It doesn't say that in Genesis though, does it, right? There's nothing in the text that says they were evil. It just simply says, well, his brother's deeds were the first fruits, suggesting that they were really, really good. And Cain's weren't as good. Now, like, oh, actually, he was deceived by the devil, which makes sense because the first sin, if you want to say that, the sin of Adam and Eve, was the devil's deception. And now the biblical writers, and it's not just the biblical writers, it's the Jewish world. The Jewish world says, oh, he was deceived by the devil. And his actions were evil. So isn't that interesting there? Any thoughts on that? Oh, and by the way, the Greek, that's an interesting translation of, of Helen's there in verse 10, the one who does not, who does these things and does not practice righteousness and does not love his brother. The Greek says brother. They've interpreted brother in the net translation that Helen read as fellow Christians. So if you don't love your fellow Christians, then you're of the devil, you're of the evil one. And that's fine, appropriate understanding of it, but it's an interpretation of it. So it doesn't say if anyone who does not love his brother, and the reason why brother is a good word here is because 
Well, the next thing that follows is the sin of Cain and Cain killed his brother. So right, any thoughts on that? The significance of that is that it reminds us of the story that it's the seed of the devil who's the deceiver. That's the enemy of all people, but of course, the enemy of the church, the enemy of God's people. It's the devil, it's the devil's deceptions. And that's the responsible and ultimately it manifests itself in, well, in 1 John, it manifests itself in love, love for one another, which goes back to the gospel, John. They'll know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Any questions? Let's go to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, verse 24. So it's just a couple of books back to your left. Hebrews 12. Mine says, and Jesus, mediator of a new covenant, and the sprinkled blood that speaks more eloquently than that of Abel. Yeah, interesting. Abel's blood speaks eloquently, but Jesus' blood speaks more eloquently. Interesting. So Abel's a righteous martyr. Abel is the first righteous one to be martyred. So Dave brought up, David brought up earlier, the ones who are crying out in Revelation 6 are the souls of those who have been slain and they cry out to God. Well, that's exactly what the biblical writers, and again, this is the Jewish understanding of the story. We understand the story of Cain and Abel. It's first fruits to God. One was righteous, one was evil. One was evil because he was deceived by the devil. He was seeking after his own interests. As a result of that, God sends him away out of uh, east of Eden, east of Eden. He's supposed to be a wanderer. There's other people around. Uh, he doesn't wander. And as a result, he builds a city. Seven generations later, it gets way worse than ever was before. Now they're bragging about killing two people. Back at the beginning of the chapter, if they're bringing their offerings to the Lord. They're bringing the offerings to Eden. Now they're not allowed inside Eden. It's being guarded, but this is, it seems to suggest that the Lord's still in Eden. And so if they're bringing their offerings to the Lord, they're, they're coming to the gate of Eden, which no stallion, none shall pass. Okay, if you know what that's from, um, that's funny. Not biblically appropriate, but it's funny. So anyways, none shall pass. But he sins and he sent further east and further east and further east. And that's obviously where the story is going to take us. They keep going further east. Any questions, comments? You said that he's going east. Toward Babylon. There's ba Babylon, yeah, Babylon. Time. At that moment in time, Babylon was not in existence. Uh -huh. Babylon. Generation. That's that's the that's the billion dollar question right there. So I'm going to save uh -huh. that answer for later, if that's okay. Um, sure. And I know David, you haven't been in our study for the first eight weeks, where we kind of laid a little bit of a foundation for how to understand the text that might help with a question like that but I'm not yeah. sure that even everyone in here in the room is ready for that answer yet either. So let's wait till we get there. So what we'll do is we'll do next week, we'll do Genesis five in the very beginning of Genesis six. And I know what's going to happen. We're going to get stuck at the very first couple of verses of Genesis six, because the sons of God have sex with the daughters of men. What in the world is going on there? And so we'll <laughs> yeah. do, we're going to talk about that passage. And then the following week, we'll do the flood narrative. And then the following week, we'll do Babel. And when we do Babel, we'll, It'll, it'll come up, but remind me and, and ask the question again, because I'm not, I'm going to be reticent to answer it, but if you ask it again, then I'm, I'm stuck and I'll have to answer it. So at least give you what, what I think is the answer. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.